Now I'd like to introduce Emma Smith, lecturer in English at the University of Oxford, professor of Shakespeare studies, and a fellow of Hartford College. She has published widely on Shakespeare, has served as a historical consultant to film and television productions, and given lectures at the RSC. She is an expert on Shakespeare's first folio, and in 2016, discovered a previously unknown copy in Scotland. In conversation with Emma Smith today is Stephen Greenblatt, the Kogan University Professor of the Humanities at Harvard University. He's the author of 14 books, including Tyrant, Shakespeare on Politics, The Rise and Fall of Adam and Eve, and Will in the World, How Shakespeare Became Shakespeare. He's also the general editor of the Northern Anthology of English Literature. We are in for a delightful hour, and these two experts are here to discuss Professor Smith's book, This is Shakespeare, which has just come out in paperback. It has received rave reviews, with the Times of London naming it Book of the Year, and Alex Preston in The Observer commending it as the best introduction to the plays I've read, perhaps the best book on Shakespeare, full stop. Welcome to you both. Thank you so much, Michael. Um, and thank you everybody uh, for being here. Thanks to colleagues at the Boston Athenaeum. It's a real uh, thrill to, to be uh, zooming into you from uh, Oxford in the UK. Uh, and I'm extraordinarily grateful to Stephen Greenblatt, who is a Shakespearean I uh, revere uh, and who has influenced me uh, a great deal, influenced our field uh, enormously. I'm so grateful to him for taking the time to be in conversation with me uh, about, about my book and about the subject we both love. So I'm just going to start by talking a little bit about This is Shakespeare and how I came to write it and uh, what I hope is distinctive uh, about it. And I want to start with the um, assumption that you, you, you're here, you already know uh, a bit about Shakespeare, you're already, uh, you're, you're already signed up in a way to uh, being interested in this great writer. Um, but there may be certain assumptions that you have uh, about his works, uh, that they are um, worthy and important, but perhaps a little bit hard work. Uh, that perhaps they uh, are full of um, difficulties uh, in understanding. Uh, perhaps they're better in performance than in reading, but even in performance, I think we've probably all experienced that very particular weariness that sometimes is uh, about half past nine, it hits me, I think, in a Shakespeare uh, production in, uh, in the English theatre. Um, there are lots of ways in which Shakespeare is revered, but perhaps not really uh, absolutely enjoyed. And we tend to tell students, uh, school students uh, and ourselves that there's a lot we need to know in order uh, to, to, to enjoy Shakespeare. There's a lot about uh, the history, there's a lot about iambic pentameter or the kings of England or how big Shakespeare's vocabulary was. Uh, all of these things I think get, get in our way, they get in our uh, way um, by stopping us from engaging more directly with these works. And what I've done in This is Shakespeare instead uh, is to suggest a Shakespeare who is really concerned with asking questions uh, rather than giving answers. And that those questions 
uh, require us to engage uh, and to think with plays. Uh, and they are the reason that Shakespeare's works have been so amenable to uh, reinterpretation across time and across the globe. So in a way, uh, I've tried to think about Shakespeare as a verb rather than a noun. I know the title of my book may sound very monolithic, but in fact, I mean the opposite of that. Uh, when I say this is Shakespeare, I'm thinking about Shakespearing as a verb which means to pose questions, to unsettle certainties, uh, to challenge some orthodoxies, to open out some of the endings. And I've tried to write a book about Shakespeare which is for grown-ups, people who don't have to sit exams, uh, people who don't need a crib, and people who don't want necessarily a biography of Shakespeare, nor a, a history, although I use lots of different methods uh, and I bring different things into collision with Shakespeare. Uh, I'm as interested in uh, The Simpsons as I am uh, in Ovid. I think that this is not a Shakespeare made simple um, because I think Shakespeare isn't simple. I think he, his complexity and his ambiguity uh, is what makes him valuable. But my argument is that Shakespeare's works are important to us because they are incomplete. They're incomplete and they need us uh, to bring them uh, into different kinds of uh, completeness as we read and as we engage. So this uh, is a Shakespeare that uh, can't possibly anticipate, but nevertheless makes space for the post-Shakespearean world. That's to say, he's not only understood as a product of the Elizabethan uh, and Jacobean period, although that's uh, a brilliantly fruitful way to think about him. Uh, more his works uh, engage um, a quality that I call gappiness. And by gappiness, I mean a kind of productive ambiguity, a kind of uh, openness to different possibilities, uh, a structural, uh, uh, ambiguous and unresolved uh, aspect, which is in part because they, these are dramas. Dramas are always about uh, two possible right answers. They, they dramatize um, different visions of the world, different perspectives on the world, different ways of seeing uh, its central questions, different motivations uh, and different narratives uh, of the same event. And they have to, if plays work, they, they work by making all of those possibilities uh, equally plausible, equally plausible to the people uh, and the characters who espouse them. So in part Shakespeare's gappiness uh, is because he's a dramatist and the drama has no uh, omniscient narrator, no sort of lyric eye who focuses all the information. But I think there are some more uh, fundamental ways in which uh, Shakespeare's works are full of gaps or these kind of air holes, these permissive uh, spaces. Uh, they're spaces about uh, characters, about their motivations, uh, and even about the plots. I start off um, the, the, the book by discussing uh, The Taming of the Shrew. And in fact, uh, I wanted to have each chapter with a small synopsis of the play before I began uh, to discuss it. And I realized that with The Taming of the Shrew, a play about very fraught gender relations uh, in the 
uh, courtship and marriage of Catherine and Petruchio, it was really impossible uh, to give a synopsis of the play which didn't already participate in the ambiguities and uncertainties. Um, is Petruchio a, um, a kind of gold digger, uh, a bounty hunter? Uh, is he a cruel uh, a wife breaker? Or is he uh, a zany who uh, does not believe in the kind of pieties uh, of Renaissance patriarchy? Is Catherine uh, a feisty kind of proto-feminist who is broken by the play? Uh, is she a, a kind of lonely uh, antisocial uh, being who needs to be uh, de dealt with in an, in an unorthodox uh, way? Are these a couple who find themselves uh, amid their kind of bourgeois uh, boring uh, friends and relations, or or is this a is this a play about um, the terrible uh, asymmetries uh, of uh, patriarchal life and the way that they play out, particularly uh, on the brutalized uh, woman? The, it's impossible to say. Actually, uh, it's not that there is a straight reading of this play, and that we could read it at an angle. It's that the play itself is fundamentally uh, open and unresolved around uh, this range uh, of possibilities. So I tried to open up some of those kinds of questions uh, about 20 of Shakespeare's plays uh, in, in this book. Uh, I hope some of your favorite plays uh, will be there. Doubtless I will have left out uh, some of them. Um, my aim has been throughout to open up a space for readers. I'm not trying actually to tell you what to think, and I certainly don't have a really grand theory of Shakespeare to inculcate, uh, still less uh, do I have access to what Shakespeare meant. I don't really know, in fact, or care what Shakespeare meant, and I really don't think you should uh, either. What I want to explore in the book instead are the ways in which Shakespeare's plays are spacious texts to think with, to think about agency and about friendship or sex, politics, laughter, and about art itself. So in each chapter, I take on a, a slightly different approach. Uh, on Romeo and Juliet, for instance, I try to uh, talk about why this play, this most famous play, starts with what we would now call a spoiler. Why does the chorus, uh, with its two households, both alike in dignity, with that opening which is uh, so familiar to us, why does it uh, tell us what's going to happen before uh, we've even met uh, the characters. And that makes me uh, think through some of the ideas about tragedy, about inevitability, about youth and haste, uh, all via um, Leonardo DiCaprio in uh, um, uh, Baz Luhrmann's great film, and my love of those elaborate domino worlds that you can just set uh, tumbling with a flick of a finger. In Midsummer Night's Dream, I talk about how the Victorians whitewashed this play uh, into a, a play for children, a play for the nursery. And instead, I talk about uh, swinging and bestiality and the dark adult pleasures uh, of this play. When I talk about Much Do About Nothing, I wonder why Don John is such a wooden baddie compared with the brilliant improvisatory villains that Shakespeare writes uh, in other plays like Richard III or, or, or in Othello. And I use that to think about toxic male bonding um, in, as the kind of 
hidden structure of this lovable uh, rom-com. Um, when I look at Comedy of Errors, I see it uh, as a version of Charlie Chaplin's production line, the dehumanizing production line in modern times. I ask what the character of uh, the ghost in Hamlet is doing for all the hours of the play that he's not on stage. Uh, and I follow a critical history of King Lear, which has tried uh, desperately to make this into a more cheerful and uplifting play rather than the bleak parable it seems to be. And throughout then, uh, I'm trying to uh, emphasize multiple interpretations and possibilities rather than a definitive answer. I think uh, in the end, uh, Shakespeare's texts demand us to participate in them. They're not codes uh, to, to solve. We don't need to just spring uh, the lock and open them up uh, to find what he intended. Instead, we've, we've got to do some, some work and some thinking and bring ourselves and our post-Shakespearean world uh, to bear on them. I don't think that Shakespeare is just all about us. I think that would be very uh, narcissistic, um, but there are some important things that these gappy plays uh, can offer our own period. And I'll finish with, with this one perhaps, or something which uh, Shakespeare would have learnt himself at school. The Elizabethan theatre draws on uh, one of the techniques of the uh, humanist school classroom, uh, which encouraged young boys, uh, the beneficiaries then of school education, young boys uh, in, a, in a particular rhetorical technique. In Latin, it's called in utramque partem, in utramque partem. And what it means is uh, the ability to argue a controversial issue or a particular scenario from multiple perspectives. It doesn't matter in that, in that classroom exercise what you actually believe, what matters is how you can make different viewpoints uh, equally authentic and compelling. You can see how it's a, a school technique which inadvertently produced wonderful dramatists, but it's also a technique which in our very polarized worlds uh, could be usefully mainstreamed. Uh, there's lots of evidence of how critics, politicians, directors, advertisers have tried to co-opt Shakespeare for one particular side of an issue uh, or another. And perhaps what's most valuable to us as we look again at the uh, ever fresh, ever present uh, presence of Shakespeare uh, in our cultural life uh, is the valuable difficulty of reducing plays to a single viewpoint or a single answer. It's that irreducibility, uh, that gappiness, which I think is their greatest gift to us right now in 2021. Thank you. Stephen, can I bring you in? Here I am. Uh, nice to see you, Emma. Uh, and uh, thank you all for joining us. Uh, I want to say, first of all, that you've written a wonderful book, uh, which I uh, think that everyone uh, with us today will enjoy as I did as well as profit from. I don't want to emphasize the profit part too much only because you are uh, so uh, steadfast against the Shakespeare of compulsory chapel. Uh, and this is precisely not Shakespeare's compulsory chapel. Uh, and that is part of the pleasure of the way it's written and the way it's thought through. Um, I want to start by asking you something that is posed 
by your presentation that you've just given uh, about, which is true of the book, about the, uh, the vision of these plays as irreducible, unresolved, full of questions, uh, gappy, as you, as you put it. And the question is this, really. Um, as you know, uh, actually, a, a former colleague of yours, Tiffany Stern, uh, some years ago, uh, came up with some evidence, interesting evidence, that suggests that it might have been possible, at least sometimes in, uh, in Shakespeare's England, to actually buy texts of the plays that you were going to see, the way sometimes we buy libretto, a libretto if we go to an opera, we buy it from uh, it, it, before we, we go into the, uh, uh, the opera house. Um, I don't know if it was actually true for, we know that only half of Shakespeare's plays were published in any case in those uh, inexpensive equivalent of paperback forms before uh, the performances, but still some of them could have been. In any case, what your, what your presentation suggests possibly is that you're emphasizing a distinction between reading and seeing. Because performing a play, but this is the question really for you, performing a play at least often has to do with, with closing the gap in the gappiness, with resolving the questions that are unresolved, with making a decision about who Petruchio is, uh, and then, and you actually have, your your book is wonderful at swooping in occasionally at performances, sometimes critically, sometimes admiringly. But are you suggesting to us today that there's a kind of uh, deep and uh, profound and perhaps irreconcilable difference between reading and performance? Yeah, thanks. Um... Stephen, I think that's a really uh, important question because I think partly my book is trying to equip and encourage people to read Shakespeare, partly in a slight pushback to the orthodoxy that Shakespeare was intended for the theatre and it's in the theatre that the plays come to life. I find that metaphor of the, the sort of corpse of the book um, uh, very counter to my own interests. And one of the one of the reasons I think reading Shakespeare can be um, compelling and engaging is precisely as you're saying. I think in reading, it's possible, even desirable, to hold in tension some of the possibilities in a particular scene or a particular character or a particular moment. Um, if you do that in performance, you're likely just to confuse the audience with with too much or with a lack of vision or a lack of clarity. Um, I talk about the possible meanings uh, of Catherine's speech at the end, long speech at the end of The Taming of the Shrew. Uh, and there are a whole range of ways you could read that speech. But if you're delivering it on the stage, you absolutely know, you, you absolutely need to know which, which it is you believe to be true at that moment. Otherwise, you can't convey, you can't communicate with your audience. So I think performances do a wonderful job um, often in... Uh, imagining, reimagining uh, Shakespeare, but they uh, they have perforce to, as you say, close the gaps to make make things clear, uh, and to unify their own artistic vision of the play. Reading doesn't need to do that, uh, and that's why I would 
encourage people to think about reading as a as 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 a good way, as as a as a as a very good way to encounter Shakespeare, and as one with real historical precedent, as you're saying, even if people did couldn't buy the plays as they went in to the theatre, they certainly could buy Shakespeare's uh, some of Shakespeare's plays in published form from the early 1590s uh, on, onwards. Uh, so reading, these were plays for the theatre, but they had a very quick transfer into print uh, mm-hmm. as well. I wonder, if, I wonder if it's possible to, to, to say that some productions and some plays uh, lend themselves to leaving some of the questions more open. That that um, that Shakespeare, Hamlet is a spectacular example, I think. But that that Shakespeare in, often has those odd moments at the end of plays in which he imagines or tries to imagine the audience or the char- through the characters going off and talking about what's just happened and and a little bit scratching the heads as to. As to What's happened? The Winter's Tale is an example. There are other uh, the Tempest, other moments in which you're uh, you can see Shakespeare playing with the possibility that that the audience won't be entirely sure uh, what what they've just seen and how to make sense of it. That's to say, part of me wants to say that at least, of course, I'm all for reading. I'm in the business, and I I love the idea of encouraging people to actually uh, get hold of the plays and read them. Uh, and and discover that that this range of of interpretive possibilities, but there are at least some of the plays in which you're you can see Shakespeare toying with his own practice, and you can also see, as you know, Emma, I mean, uh, that there's a particularly Shakespeare version of this. That Shakespeare's marvelous colleague, rival, friend, enemy, Ben Jonson, uh, was frantic frantic to get everyone to see the play the way he wanted to see it uh, mm-hmm. and to make sure that it's exactly the way he has imagined it uh, and to try to control it as much as possible. That doesn't seem to be Shakespeare's practice ever uh, at all. So he seems to have thought that his business model depended on the very thing that you're describing, lots of different possibilities. Lots of yeah, I think that's, so that's the comparison with Johnson is just so interesting. I was thinking that as you, as you were speaking, um, not least because one um, one interesting thing about Shakespeare is that he he very rarely uh, he very rarely has a plot twist. To be honest, we already know what's going to happen in all these plays, don't we? Uh, you know, if the if you if there's a if there's a young man at the centre, uh, he's probably going to be dead. <laughs> Um, if there's a young couple, you know, whatever, they're going to get married. The Shakespeare's plays don't give us plot surprises in that way. He, he Apart from Winter's Tale, which you just mentioned, he doesn't withhold, uh, he, he doesn't exert that kind of authorial control by withholding material uh, from the audience uh, and then revealing at the end, oh, the this person was actually uh, X in disguise all along. Um, and so it's not that kind of gap that Shakespeare is, is interested in. He's laying out uh, what's happening, but still, you know, we don't really feel that we understand why, um, what has happened to Lady Macbeth, say, and, and, and why we've, we've moved on. We don't know, we, we never get to know. Um, uh, the, these are um, 
a very particular kind of interpretive gap where we don't we, we've got to think for ourselves what the significance uh, or what the what the sort of arc of that might be. And you're right that Johnson Johnson is the real comparison point because Johnson's whole uh, in, in some ways we would love to have from Shakespeare what we have from Johnson, which is a whole body of literary criticism around his play, his prologues, um, uh, prefatory material, uh, poems, talking about their reception and so on. We don't get any of that from Shakespeare. Uh, but all of that material is for Johnson a kind of uh, a control a control mechanism. So he's more like a, a playwright who has um, a very active estate right now, you know, who, who won't allow the plays to be performed unless it's going to be in the approved manner, or like a, a 20th century playwright full of bristling the stage directions to say, this is how every single thing should be done. But the one of the curious things about the Shakespeare's tactic is that it worked. I mean, it's a, it's strange that it worked because you would think uh, that the gappiness, uh, you also call it frustrating uh, in your book, that it would produce uh, much more frustration uh, of the kind that usually signals failure uh, than it does. So do you have reflections on why uh, this actually worked it, it's a recipe for disaster if i go to a, a school to, and i'm being a, a school uh, in which i'm getting an mfa in playwriting i'm sure i'd be told not to do this yes <laughs> i think there are lots of um, uh, lots of ways shakespeare would be a very bad model for uh, mfa um, yeah play, playwriting um, um, yeah it, that, that that's a great thought isn't it i mean one could argue that there's a kind of, um, I suppose one could argue that, that part of the business model, is, is, which is how you put it a moment ago, of Shakespeare, for Shakespeare, is something which is not fully engaged with the idea of the audience as a singular, and is more engaged with how you can, um, how, how your play can land differently with different people. So he's trying to allow uh, theatre goers to respond in some way, perhaps more more like more like readers or you know readers of uh, poetry or something uh, with with their own sort of sense of what's. Uh, of what's important or what's mo what's most relevant. I hadn't thought of that before. I mean, that would be an interesting thing to think about. Uh, it's a cliche about about theatre that people go in as individuals and come out as an audience. Um, but maybe Shakespeare's less interested in that and and wants them to re retain that that sense of uh, of, of, of of individuals. Um, yeah, I mean, what Wayne's put in the in the chat that about Hitchcock, uh, audiences like to know more than the characters in the show do, and I think that's absolutely right, Wayne. I think, I think one of the ways, one of the reasons, so small reasons that Shakespeare is so popular is he he can make us feel clever because we already know, aha, you know, that guy is not is not a good guy, or uh, there are there are two twins. That's what's confusing everybody. You know, we we do tend to be in a position of uh, of plot authority uh, with Shakespeare, which is different from how um, Johnson works. 
one way I, I don't want to uh, to have uh, my business model metaphor be too uh, make this too commercial an enterprise. Uh, another way I've been I tried to think about the th the thing we're describing with Shakespeare is the idea of the second chance. Uh, I, I've been trying to write a book about Shakespeare and second chances with uh, with a British psychoanalyst, uh, Adam Phillips, because it's such a sort of powerful desire that we have. And Shakespeare, toward the end of his life, thought a lot about second chances. And even as a as a writer, I'm taking his own plots and running them through a second time, trying to see if he could get them to work out a different way. And it's as if the plays are 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 written with the possibility of second chances always with being able to run it through with a rather different, sometimes completely different uh, tone, outcome, vision. Your example, one of your examples was, as you said, Midsummer Night's Dream, you, you make fun of the Victorians, but by your own principle, the Victorians were perfectly within their rights to make this a kind of uh, spectacle, a celebration of innocence, even though to us it's a play about bestiality and, uh, I mean, terrifying things. Yeah, uh, um, I I love that idea about second chances. That that will be a that will be a tremendous book because it's such an important ethical sort of post tragic position, and you're so right that Shakespeare it it does that explicitly by yeah rerunning re uh, rerunning re his his tragedies and sort of speeding them up and then put seeing where you can go, where you, where you can go after that. Um, and that is very, I, I think one of the reasons those late plays by Shakespeare, like Winter's Tale and like The Tempest, like Cymbeline, um, one of the Victorian critics, as you know, um, uh, when Dowden calls them romances, you know, everybody always says, oh, these aren't, these aren't really romances, so it's not a very satisfactory label, but we haven't really been able to come up with a different label, even though we can all recognize these are a distinct kind of genre. They're not really tragic comedy as other people understand it. And I think that second chance um, is, is such a uh, powerful uh, idea of, of, of Shakespeare's late, um, kind of late, late period. And yet, you're absolutely right about the Victorians. Of course, uh, of course, they were making the Shakespeare that they wanted to, and that they needed, and they were responding to, um, you know, ideas about childhood and about education, and and so on. I suppose what I was saying about Midsummer Night's Dream is sometimes we're 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 still a little bit caught in that, and that there are costs to making Shakespeare suitable for children, which may be a very good thing and maybe maybe something that we we would value. But there are costs in in the kinds of interpretations of Shakespeare that are allowed, and I certainly think that theatre companies sometimes come up against that. One thing that you do in your book repeatedly, which is related to, not the same, but related to what we're just describing, is to zero in on a character that the reader or the audience might not have noticed or thought a lot about, who represents somehow something either incredibly important about the play or something that, that the play has as a kind of hidden possibility that it's not uh, necessarily developing. Sin of the poet, you, you, you ask us for almost the whole of your chapter on Julius Caesar to think about uh, Antonio uh, in Twelfth Night. Uh, why don't you talk a little bit about, or the, or the poor host whose name Coriolanus forgets, 
in Coriolanus. Why don't you talk about that tactic of yours of just displacing us? Yeah, I suppose, um, I mean, I wrote this book um, as a development of some uh, lectures I had done for my own uh, Oxford University students. And some of the chapters in the book have the, uh, the marks of the lectures more than others. The lectures were all around um, trying to distill the commentary about a play into one question. So the lectures, in the lectures that are behind this book, I would say, why is Falstaff fat? Um, uh, what's the point of uh, Antonio? Uh, why does Coriolanus uh, forget the name of the person who helped him uh, in, in, in Coriol, in, in the battle in, in Coriol? And I would try to use those as uh, a focus for a discussion which for all of us, I think has, has the possibility of just getting out of control. There's so much to be said about Shakespeare. There's so much to read. There's so much to think about. Um, some, some kind of focus can, uh, can be really useful. Uh, and I think by trying to go in uh, sideways, sometimes I found the plays um, uh, a bit more, um, you could sort of tickle them into submission a bit more rather than sort of a head-on collision with, you know, why does Hamlet delay? It was kind of easier to come around and say, why does Hamlet have the same name as his father? Um, and quite often in those uh, questions, I was able to use um, uh, something you I mean, something you write about uh, in Will in the World, where you talk about that brilliant phrase you've got for what Shakespeare does to his sources, which is about strategic opacity, you know, the, 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 the bringing in of complexity, which is not present in the source material. And in all of those cases, looking at the Shakespeare source material helped me to see this decision is purposeful in some way. It has not just been absorbed with the, uh, with, with the source. Uh, it, it Shakespeare's seen um, uh, in Coriolanus, the fact that the, that, that the, um, uh, the ally of Coriolanus in, in Plutarch is rich uh, and, and in Shakespeare is poor. And that's a, that's a purposeful choice. It's a tiny thing, but it enabled me to open up uh, some of the bigger questions um, ab about the play. You know, maybe maybe this maybe something of the same tactic, and maybe this will interest our our uh, listeners. I mean, uh, uh, participants. Maybe some of the same tactic of tickling the plays into submission, as you put it, uh, could be your use of of uh, contemporary, uh, modern, and often strikingly non-Shakespearean uh, examples. You have a marvelous uh, uh, remark in in your discussion of Henry the Fourth. Uh, you semi alluded to it in, uh, as we began today that you wanted to, to uh, appeal to an analogy uh, with Homer, and then you say Homer Simpson. Uh, so uh, that's part of your your the delight of the book. But talk about why someone like Homer Simpson. What, what what's he doing in a book hmm. called This Is Shakespeare? So uh, Falstaff. Um, who is most prominent in the Henry IV uh, plays and who we hear about, um, hear the death of in Henry V and who has a, a, a sort of parallel life in The Merry Wives of Windsor. 
I think the evidence suggests to us that he is the most successful and well-known character that Shakespeare writes, much more than Hamlet, much more than, uh, I don't know, uh, Rosalind or, or, or something. You know, people thought that uh, they saw Falstaffs around them in everyday life and that, um, that this, was a, this was a caricature of a person who was uh, somehow kind of recognizable uh, in, in the world. People just loved Falstaff. And there are difficulties about how to get, get to that now. Um, and in fact, the character of Falstaff and whether he's a good thing or not is probably the oldest question in Shakespeare criticism. Uh, it's been, the, funnily enough, the kind of foundational question uh, for the very earliest books of, 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 of Shakespeare uh, criticism, the character of Falstaff. But I tried to think about somebody else. I tried to think about how we could make an equivalence to that popularity in our own time. And it seemed to me that Homer Simpson, who is um, wrong and uh, self-centered and greedy and sort of venial in all kinds of ways and lovable and a failure um, and very recognizable, was a, was a sort of anti-hero for our own times too, that, uh, that there's a way Homer Simpson makes it possible for us to be less good uh, uh, you know, to, to, to be less less admirable, our, our less admirable selves. And that Falstaff, that it, it seemed to me that actually maybe that was what Falstaff did for the for the Elizabethans, who, who also had a kind of, you know, it must have been annoying, mustn't it, to see someone like Francis Drake and think, oh, you know, he's what a lovely beard he's got and how swashbuckling he is. And he's been, you know, around the world and he's got all this treasure and what a brave chivalric man he is. Most of us are not like that. And it'd be rather reassuring to have somebody like Falstaff, who's um, uh, disreputable and cowardly and probably a bit more like, like us. So Homer Simpson seemed actually quite, quite a similar, quite a similar I figure. love it. Uh, it does, uh, we, I can't fully imagine Falstaff saying, duh, but I do think that, <laughs> that he comes close. Uh, can you think of other, are, are there for you other, points in in contemporary culture that either with characters or with or or or, or that strike you as strikingly Shakespearean uh, but in un, unexpected ways or surprising mm. ways yeah I talked briefly in the book about um, the last episode of friends and the and, and uh, much ado about nothing and the sense in Shakespeare and in the kind of rom-com that there are, uh, losses when the same-sex friendships that are in the background of comedy uh, break up or have to break up. They're, they're, they're the sacrifice in order to get the, the sort of happy ending. Um, uh, I'm just trying to think. I mean, I think I think it's a it's a great um, it's a great way sometimes to um, pe pep up the. Uh, um, I tell you another one I quite often use with with uh, with with schools in the UK. Um, all, all our high schoolers, um, aged about fifteen, have to read Macbeth. That's the that's the play they they read. And what we often talk about there is uh, um, is Twilight and those kinds of teen things, um, partly to destabilise the idea that 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 anybody who went to see Macbeth in the early seventeenth century must have believed in witchcraft. Yes. And to think, 
about those sorts of worlds as as metaphorical in some ways or about the the enjoyment of the of, of the imagination because you know we are not in a world that which believes whatever that quite means in 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 vampires yes good i mean and you i was thinking as you were talking about what my own experience but of course it's high culture ones i i apologize to say more often that you talk about audience masochism in richard the third uh i'm i happen to love wagner Mm -hmm. But it's an exercise in audience masochism, especially the, the uh, uh, kind of ecstatic audience masochism, particularly in, if you go to the whole ring. And I'm trying to think of the equivalent of what you call, an, unforgettably in Romeo and Juliet, the structural equivalent of premature ejaculation. Uh, but there must be something uh, in, in, uh, in art that is the equivalent uh, of that, of suddenly giving you something at the very beginning that you think, really, uh, now I know the the, the entire uh, the thing before it's begun. I want to um, ask you before we turn to the, which we will in a minute, to the questions which are uh, in the chat, and I encourage the people listening to to add uh, further questions um, to go to the very end of your book. When you write about the tempest, uh, and you raise the, the you you discuss the peculiar way in which the uh, Prospero, the hero of the if that's the right word for it of the tempest, uh, who is simultaneously the wise, the infinitely wise magician, and strangely and disturbingly the the slave owner, uh, the colonist. And then you make a surprising turn because your biography is actually, Shakespeare biography is, is uh, marginalized, even though this is a book called, This is Shakespeare, you are very careful not to be writing a biography, but you raise the possibility that, that Shakespeare is somehow this figure, the colonist, the proprietor, uh, the slave owner. Uh, and uh, could you, Talk about that dark underside a, a bit that you allow to surface just at the very end of your. Yeah, your... that's. Yeah, I haven't put those two things together as you read them, but you, I can absolutely see that that's right. So I suppose I was thinking about. Um, I was thinking about those two readings sequentially, but you're absolutely right that they that they map onto each other. I was thinking about the reading that since the 18th century has been very keen to see Prospero as a Shakespeare figure and to see Prospero's art as uh, Shakespeare's um, uh, theatrical art and to see Prospero's um, renunciation of that, of his magic uh, that it, as a figuring of Shakespeare's retirement from, uh, fr from the London uh, theatre world. And that's been a really, um, a, a really sort of common and prevalent uh, re reading of the plays, of the play. And then I was thinking about what, in fact, particularly American critics have done since the beginning of the 20th century in thinking about, thinking seriously about this as a play about the so-called new world, um, about, uh, about Jamestown or about um, settlements and uh, news that comes back from uh, these uh, voyages and about the um, the plays 
consciousness of the ways in which the Indians, as they're called in the play, are you know, commodified, that they're going to be brought back um, and you know, taken around fairs and, and so on. Um, and that more recent criticism, so if, if the 19th and early 20th century were preoccupied with Prospero as a self-portrait, I suppose the later 20th century has been, and the 21st have been more interested in Prospero the colonist. And what's interesting is whether um, what we might actually have is a very dark self-portrait rather than have left the self-portrait behind. Yeah. That you, the, the wires get very close in that last chapter of the two, but uh, you don't let them quite touch. In fact, I, I, as I say, I want to turn to the audience, but I should say that there's a remarkable move in that last chapter, to, remarkable to me, of suggesting that the Tempest is Shakespeare's, I'm put, going to put it more extremely than you put it, Shakespeare's final attempt to kill off Marlowe, mm -hmm. by whom he had been haunted all of his career, that this is uh, Shakespeare's trying to come to terms with Dr. Faustus finally, uh, and to write a play, which he had never done, uh, that will, uh, as it were, push back or drive a stake uh, into the, into the uh, ghost of Christopher Marlowe. Yeah, I think um, what, yeah, one of the things that perhaps Shakespeare, it's really interesting thinking back to what you were saying about second chances. Shakespeare has what Johnson has, but what most of the people who are writers when he sets out in London, which is, he has something particularly, which is a long life, a relatively long life. And, you know, there's a sort of, yeah, I sometimes wonder whether there was a sort of survivor guilt about being somebody who makes it, you know, st stops being a bright young thing and, and makes it into a kind of mature career, unlike Marlowe, unlike- Or Kid, or, or, like kid. or Nash, yeah. or all no, of them die yeah, young. All of them, yeah. they're, they're all, uh, but yeah. 52, uh, is that, am I, am I, uh, is that yeah. Shakespeare's age? Yes, 52 is, well, not a long life, maybe, but long longer. His yeah. mother lived a longer life uh, in terms of, of uh, years. But I'm going to turn to the questions because people are asking them and I will, it's now uh, time. So uh, let's see. Um, I, I will start uh, at the top um, with the back to the beginning of what our conversation, uh, did, did Shakespeare's contemporaries structure plays use the control of, of plot twists? Are there plot, plot twists to this qu question that seem like a modern contrivance? Uh, he's wondering if other uh, writers, other than in, contemporary writers in Shakespeare's time, used, surprised you with what happens at the end of the play. Yeah, th thanks, Ira. When we were talking about that, we were discussing um, Ben Jonson, and I think Jonson does enjoy the kind of reveal, uh, and it's usually the reveal that a character is actually the lost ex in disguise, um, or um, there's a brilliant um, uh, play by Jonson called Epicene, in which the 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 the, um, the wife. 
uh, is revealed that the wife who's driving the husband completely mad and by being so noisy and, and, and terrible uh, is revealed actually to, to be a boy dressed up. Um, uh, that's a, a sort of these are re revelation moments which resolve the plot with a with a with a sort of denouement. And that's doesn't that doesn't tend to be how Shakespeare works. Let me go on to to uh, James Liu. Uh, this is a question uh, very close to your heart, since you are one of the great experts on Shakespeare's texts. Uh, one of the challenging aspects of Shakespeare's legacy is that we have in the quartos, folios, and so forth, what was reconstructed from actors' recollections, James Wright, setting it down years after the production, each actor was bound to do a little rewriting as they recalled the lines. Don't, do you think that some of Shakespeare's ambiguity and universality comes from this ambiguity of the, of the way in which the texts were recorded? Right. Yeah, so J James, that's, I mean, that's a really um, interesting take on um, uh, the theory that's called memorial reconstruction, the idea that Shakespeare's plays, some early texts of Shakespeare come to us um, sort of not via uh, one written text to the next, but through the memory and, and recall of somebody involved, perhaps, perhaps the actor. Um, most textual scholars are, are less convinced now about um, memorial reconstruction as an explanation for Shakespeare's uh, texts. But nevertheless, you're right that there are um, sort of uh, hiccups, failures in transmission, um, and uh, you know some of, some of the problems about Shakespeare's texts are words that we just don't, um, or readings that we just, we just can't quite understand and that something seems to have gone amiss in the way that text has been, has been transmitted. So yes, I think there's definitely um, an an element of uh, uh, an element an element of that, and you're quite right too that actors, particularly comic actors, I think would have ad libbed much more. Um, uh, you know, the, these if if we thought about Shakespeare's plays as scripts, we would immediately be able to um, to imagine and to allow for much more uh, actor intervention uh, than perhaps we are used to thinking of. Emma, do you currently think that the Shakespeare that we have from the first folio reflects a higher degree of interest on Shakespeare's part in, in the printing of his plays than had been thought in the past? Um, I think, uh, I still think that um, certainly the plays published during Shakespeare's lifetime uh, it doesn't quite compute for me that somebody might write longer versions of their um, performed plays specifically for readers, and then that they would apparently show no interest in um, making sure that they were presented in print in a, um, you know, in a consistent and high quality way. That that you know that that there's something missing there for me, um, but I, it's a very lively area of Shakespeare uh, scholarship, um, as as we both know. The question, the, the the old idea was that Shakespeare was not interested in publication, and that's come come to a, um, come to be challenged in all kinds of ways more recently. Let me ask you uh, Bruce Park's question: How do you see the differences in the gaps we might have versus the ones the Elizabethans had? What's our gappiness? Yeah, Bruce, that's really a key question, isn't it? Because there are there are all kinds of things which we bring uh, to these plays which are just not 
uh, perhaps not available to uh, to the Elizabethans. Um, and I think uh, what works in, in my concept of these gaps, um, they have been throughout the history of Shakespeare's plays, they have been filled in uh, according to the world and the, the society which was um, sort of reimagining those plays. So when King Charles comes back to the throne in England after the Civil War, uh, Shakespeare is back back on the stage, but it's a Shakespeare where kings, all kings are, are restored. King Lear doesn't die, he's put back on the throne. Um, uh, you know, the, the, these are the, 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 these are plays which are being adapted to tell the stories that we need at particular times. So you're absolutely right that the gaps are always changing. I want to to pose a, uh, to you a que the question that's asked by the anonymous attendee, who writes. Uh, what advice might you give to those of us who can read a synopsis and vaguely understand the overall plot, but always end up finding the archaic language too elusive to understand? And uh, the, uh, that uh, question actually um, also relates to the problem of reading Shakespeare as opposed to listening, uh, as opposed to hearing and performed. Often you can get past the, the uh, archaic moments uh, yeah. in performance, but you're puzzled in reading them. Yeah, so I think if you're in that position, so I know I've been arguing for, for reading, but if, if reading uh, is, is not uh, enjoyable, then I would, I would try and tr tr try to see it in performance, try to watch, um, I think, filmed Shakespeare. Shakespeare on film is often um, extremely uh, inventive and creative in streamlining uh, plots and, and characters. So I think I think I would pick pick the play that interests you and have a look, have a look around uh, at, at. And if you if you have the time to watch more than one version of the same play, you begin to see uh, what a lot of latitude there is, what a lot of gap there is uh, in these in these plays. And Lisa Wilson asks, how knowledgeable about Shakespeare's plays do I need to be to engage with your book, Emma? Um, well, Lisa, I, I try to describe the play, so don't assume that you know it already or that it's absolutely on your uh, on the tip of your tongue. Um, uh, so I don't think you need this. This is not a book for experts. Mm, OK, and I, I wanted to uh, emphasize that. I mean, it's a it's a very vivid and lively, super bright book, but it's not one that requires uh, you don't have to be a 32nd degree uh, Shakespearean to get enormous uh, pleasure and profit from uh, the book. Um, can you talk, uh, speak uh, to Frederick's question, Frederick Waterman's question, who, who has accompanied you or, or whom you've accompanied on 40 hours of pandemic walks? <laughs> uh, at one point, he says, in your approaching Shakespeare lectures, you mentioned how comedy sets up tragedy. Would you expand on that? So, Fr Frederick, I'm, I'm so delighted I've been on your walks with you. I'm sorry our conversations have been so, uh, so one-sided. One <laughs> um, I, I can't absolutely remember what, what I was thinking there, but I suppose uh, one of the theories about the difference between comedy and tragedy is, that, um, uh, is about where they start and finish. Um, so that uh, if you 
um, the Elizabethans might have understood this as the as the wheel of fortune. Where are you on the wheel? You know, I, if you're at the top, you, you, uh, you you're probably you're on the way down, and if you're at the bottom, uh, eventually you're you're on the way up. Um, so that maybe comedy. Um, actually, I wonder if I was talking about it in relation to Othello, where I say about Othello that um, uh, comedy's great insight, which is that we are. Um, most ourselves when we are with other people and that we need to find those people and surround ourselves with them. You know, comedies are communal, uh, whereas tragedies are individualist and isolated. I say that in Othello, uh, a tragedy comes from Othello's sort of willingness in some way to embrace that comic knowledge that he is, he is no longer, he's no longer complete. Um, uh, and and that's, that, that brings about the tragic outcome. Um, uh, we have, I'm afraid, only time for one more question, and it, the one that just happens to pop up at the very top of my of the list here was: censorship ever an issue? Did Shakespeare ever have an innate sense of what he could get away with, or no desire to approach his possible limits? Stephen asks. Stephen yeah, Short. That's, that's a really interesting question, Stephen. I mean, lot, what lots of critics would say is that Shakespeare, um, in sort of intrinsically avoids that kind of topical work that he's he, he's he's steering away from um, not just specific um, uh, engagement with contemporary issues but but he's, he's you know he's 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 operating in a in a much more kind of fairy tale world I think if you were to look at the history plays, there are questions about whether Richard II undergoes some censorship. Um, uh, uh, but but he's much less, he keeps out of it much more than many other writers. Um, and that may be also why he, do, he doesn't write religious poetry, which most writers do. He doesn't write on the death of Elizabeth, for example, which lots of writers do. These are the, the, these start cumulatively to look like somebody who is um, keeping below the keeping below the radar constitutionally or or, or for, for some other reason. I wear lots of other questions, but I'm afraid I have to bring it to a close. But I want to say I want to close it by quoting lines with which Emma will be very familiar because they come from the the letter to the variety of readers that is the uh, preface to uh, the first folio, uh, the editors who were Shakespeare's contemporaries and friends said, if you do not like him, surely you're in some manifest danger not to understand him. And then they add, we'll leave you with others of his friends who will be able to help you <laughs> understand him. And, and Emma is one of the great friends of Shakespeare of our time, who helps us uh, understand. And it's a singularly uh, important role, I think, to play for all of us. So I want to thank you, Emma, and I want to thank uh, the, the many people who've joined us to participate in today's 